Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father God, would you open our hearts? We don't want information. We don't want entertainment. We want to get fed. We want to get taught. We want to grow. So Holy Spirit, come now. Open the word to us. Open the word to us that we might understand it and obey and live. Lord, we want the fullness of the Spirit. We want all that you have for us. So we're studying carefully your word that we might obey and you might bless. Come now, in Jesus' name, amen. We're talking today about spiritual language. As we read this passage, we're watching a new era begin. The relationship between God's spirit and his people has changed forever. Did you hear this? This is a big deal. What's happening right now on the day of Pentecost is a big deal. It is a spiritual shift. You know, if you want to talk about dispensations, uh, this is one. This is one. We are moving from an old covenant relationship in which people are indeed righteous by faith. Come on. But, but they, we are now moving into an era where God is not just with us. He is in us. Yeah, we're seeing the changes and, and Peter's going to tell us what this is all about. And, and I, listen, I'm, I, we're going through this to lay in our minds a clear understanding biblically. You, this, these sections of Scripture have been so twisted, so perverted in the, in the hearts of people that are against the move of the Spirit that, that I, I do not have a book, a commentary on my shelf right now that does not oppose basically what we're saying today. And I want to, so I take you through the scripture, I, tell you, I show you the words, we're going right through it carefully, and you'll, you notice I'm not twisting, I am not perverting it, I'm not importing something into it, I don't have to force it. Why? Because it is a, it, this, is a, this is a book that talks about the life of the power of God and the spirit of God, and, and I don't know what's gone on in church history, what twisted our brains, what made us go crazy and want to push this off the table, I don't get it, I really don't get it. So we're going back, why? Because we want to move in all God has for us. Don't we? I mean, every one of us, every one of us, we all want what God has for us. So the relationship between God's spirit and his people has changed forever. Say forever. Forever. Yeah, this is forever. Never before had the Holy Spirit been able to live inside the sin-contaminated bodies of believers. Never before was such intimacy with God possible to all of God's people, not just a special few. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven radically changed things. His death actually cleansed our bodies and made them a suitable dwelling place for God. Now he's able to live inside us. And as you might expect, when he arrives, it produces some remarkable changes. The first thing that happened on that day of Pentecost was that each disciple began speaking in a language he or she had never learned. Luke says they spoke words which the Spirit gave them to speak out. Never before had there been such a miracle. 
There, were, there are numerous examples in the Old Testament of the Spirit coming upon people with the result that they spoke out prophetically in their own language, but never in a new, unlearned language. Why would God do such a thing? Many conflicting answers have been given to this question, but Peter actually gives us his own inspired explanation. He says, it's a sign of the last days. He says, it's a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Let's look more closely at this miracle of speaking in other languages. Here's the translation. Let me tell you how we get here. This is the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is one of the three great feasts of Israel. Ten days earlier, Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's told his disciples, go into the city, wait until you be endued with power from on high. He said, you're going to be baptized in the spirit like John baptized into water. It's going to come now in great power upon you. Go wait for that. So they waited. They waited in prayer. We've seen that. They gathered in an upper room. And here we have them on Pentecost morning. This is early in the morning. They're gathered and they're having some kind of prayer meeting, some kind of worship service together. Undoubtedly 120, maybe plus. It's, it's, a, it's Pentecost. Uh, Luke actually says they were all together in, in one place. So you've got a, a gathering of all the faithful and they're having this service, and we saw last week what happened. Suddenly, they heard a sound. We're not told what the sound is, but it came from heaven. A sound coming out of heaven is what it says. And it, and it came toward them, and when it arrived, it came born on a, on a strong gust of wind, a, a, a breath of wind. So they're worshiping, they hear this sound, and it grows and it comes, and they literally feel that come over them like a breath of wind. Then it surrounds them in that upper room and the whole house. And as that happens, a fire comes into the room, a, a column a, like fire, but it wasn't fire, it's light. What is it, of course? It's the Shekinah glory of God. It's the pillar that led Israel. It's the, it's, here comes the Holy Spirit now in manifest form. And we're seeing this beautiful fire. And it divided itself into portions. And one portion came over every person's head, we think. It sat on them, is what Luke says. So whether it enveloped them in a sense, we don't. But it came over each person. A, a powerful Jewish symbol, the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in this tabernacle. Just as he did in, in the wilderness, now he's dwelling upon the new tabernacle, the tabernacle of flesh, the tabernacle of the human body. You are now the tabernacle of God. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. So, that, so that's what's happened. When that spirit arrives, they all begin, every one of them, and we're going to see men and women, young and old, there are young present, it appears, young and old, they all began to speak in languages they had not learned as the Spirit gave them to speak out, which is what Luke says. So there they are, and they're apparently pretty loud. Well, by now they're Pentecostals. You know they're going to be loud. So, so we've got 120 people going for it. The, the, this is about 9 o'clock in the morning. That is when the temple gates open. In, in, in Jerusalem. Nine o'clock is when the morning sacrifice takes place. So these great, it takes 26 men to open these big, you know, these big gates are being opened. And people are coming now to bring their offering to the temple and the streets are full. Well, it's a, 
made out of stone. Everything's made out of stone. That thing's echo. And, and so you can hear this roaring of voices going on, and the crowd begins to gather going, what is this? Now, how, what I'm about to show you today, how, where this takes place isn't certain. But I don't, I don't think you could have just in those streets talked to thousands of people. It's pretty awkward. I think they all went, and this is, this is what others think as well, but I think they went to the steps of the temple. In 1970, when Mary and I went there, these steps were just covered. You didn't know they were there. But archaeologists have uncovered them. And when we go now, we literally, you can walk up these very, the southern steps of the temple, these great wide stone steps. And it's like a stone amphitheater, just like a stadium seating as it goes up to the temple. I think the crowd all went and sat on these steps. Peter and the 11 would have stood at the bottom, makes a perfect amphitheater-like thing. And by the way, within yards of where they're standing behind them are, are mikvahs. There's mikvahs, these baptismal tanks, these Jewish baptismal tanks all around them. So when Peter gives the invitation at the end of this thing, I mean, they don't, they don't have to go 10 yards to find a baptismal tank, I'm telling you. They're all there. So here's where we pick up. Verse 14 and 15. And standing with the 11, Peter lifted up his voice and declared to them, men, Jews, and all those living in Jerusalem, it's a formal kind of greeting, let this be known to you and listen to my words, for these are not drunk as was mistakenly reported to you, for it is the third hour of the day. You recall some people uh, said, what is this? And are, are, are very open spiritually. Other people mock it and dismiss it by calling them drunk. Verse 16, would you read that out loud with me? But this is that which was spoken through the prophet Joel. This is that. This is the thing spoken through the prophet Joel. Verse 17, and it shall be in the last days, says God, I will pour out from my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters will do what? Who's going to prophesy? And your young, and now I put in brackets men, and your, old will, your young will see vision and your old will dream dreams. The reason I put it in brackets is because the terms are a general term that could, would inclu can include both male and female when it's used. And given the context there, I think it does. Your young will see visions, your old will dream dreams. Verse 18, and upon my male servants... And upon my female servants. This is exactly the way this reads in the Greek. In those days, I will pour out from my spirit and they will what? Would you notice, he's quoting from Joel. Here we have 120 plus disciples, men and women, young and old, praising God in languages they've never been taught. Peter points to this and says, this is what God said through Joel would occur in the last days. And he said, the prophecy is this. God had promised to pour out his spirit on, on all flesh, men and women, young and old, male and female servants, 
and they shall all do what? I'm going to make a point here. You'll notice that in the last days, there is no gender distinction. You'll notice there's no age distinction. Had Paul later on said, I don't allow a woman to prophesy, he would have to apologize for he would have erred. He didn't say that. Actually, he gives instruction for when women prophesy in a service, asks them to cover their head, which was a cultural symbol. But he does not at all forbid it. I say that to say, Peter, under the unction of the Spirit, is standing up on the day of Pentecost, pointing to men and women who are prophesying and saying, this is what God said would happen in the last days. Now, I'm going to show you now. We're going to, I, what I'm going to take you through is some, some Jewish eschatology, because you and I are now going back 2,000 years. We're standing there with this crowd who are all Jews, and they get it. They know what's going on. They know, they, they, they know Joel. Peter, notice, just quotes it right off from the top of his head. Most everybody around him can do the same. They know what he's referring to, and they know the concepts he's drawing on right now. It makes sense to them what he's saying. But here we are, uh, 2,000 years later. We, we, if you try to just look into this thing and you don't think Jewish, you get really muddled. And people say some of the dumbest things. Uh, and they mean well. But they're coming at it from outside with no, no real knowledge of what's being said and mistaken. So we, before we can go any further, I'm going to take you in and we're going to get some eschatology. We're going to look at what is Peter saying. Are you ready for that? All right, we got to go. I'll go on with the text, just a few more. Verse 19, and I will, God says, and I will give wonders, meaning miraculous disruptions of nature in the heavens. Above, meaning day and night sky, that's the heavens, and signs, meaning miracles that point to a truth about God, on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor, meaning steam of smoke, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious, shining with light, day of the Lord comes. And it will be that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you read verse 21 out loud? And it will be... That whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, what on earth did he just say here? Here's his Peter's announcement. Peter announces that the last days have begun. He was telling the multitude that the miracles they were seeing, the miracle they were seeing wasn't simply like the miracles that will happen at the end of this age. It was the first expression of those miracles. They all knew that when the Messiah would come, he would perform several important ministries, two of which are described by this passage in Joel. First, he will pour out the Holy Spirit on Israel, restoring their relationship to God to a far deeper level than it had ever been before. And second, he will arrive at a time when Israel will be under a terrible attack by Gentile armies. And he will destroy those armies in a great battle. Turn with me to Joel chapter 3. You'll notice the first portion of this Joel prophecy says that, that he will pour out his spirit. Who, who, who is going to do all of this? Messiah. Listen to this. The last days 
the most central feature of the last days is the coming of the Messiah. Has Messiah come? Huh? Not only has he come, now, no one understood fully that he would die on the cross. I mean, it's all in the scriptures, but we didn't get it till we saw it. But he's died on the cross. But these, these men that are standing there have watched him rise from the dead, touched him, eaten with him, and watched him lift slowly into heaven and disappear. And they know where he is. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, where the Father, which is Psalm 110, where God says to Messiah, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. Messiah has come and Messiah is ruling. They get it. This isn't like, like the last days. It is the last days. Now, there's, he's going to come again. There's more to this. But the last days have begun. If you want to say there's a dispensation, there is. Starting right there at the ascension into heaven. We are in the era of the last days until Jesus comes again. How long do these things last? Till Jesus comes again. You follow that? Paul will say the same identical thing in 1 Corinthians 13. This business that says the spirit is lifted from us and these things should not be because the Bible was written? For heaven's sake, it's a ridiculous argument. No one, no one with their head straight can say that. I'm telling you, it's people who don't want these things, who are afraid of them, who come up with spurious arguments just to protect themselves from having to be drawn into this spiritual life. Did I say that clearly enough? I mean, you didn't miss my point, right? Why on earth would I care? Why on earth would we care? Because this is our birthright. This is New Testament Christianity. This is what's supposed to be happening for the last 2,000 years. First, he will, I, I said he'll pour out. Now, I've taken the second part of that Joel prophecy almost seems bizarre, doesn't it? Like, what's that doing there? there he, there's going to be blood and fire and smoke and all that before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Going, why did, why did, Peter, why didn't you just stop earlier? I want you to see. Are you, are you in? Did you find Joel? Gave you enough time there. Yeah. Jose. <laughs> all right. The, the, I'm starting at chapter 3, verse 1, which is directly the next following verse after Peter's stopped. You see that? So if Peter had kept going, this is what he would have read. Behold, in those days at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they've scattered among the nations. You have to have something in your mind. All through the prophets, there is an understanding that at the end of time, there will be a huge battle. That the nations of the world will come against God's people. They will surround them and they will be in desperate straits. It's not just Joel. It is, I mean, it, you can't hardly name one of the major prophets who doesn't talk about this. There will be this terrible battle. Is it in the New Testament, by the way? What do we call it? Armageddon. Armageddon. Exactly. This is, 
that is not a New Testament revelation. That is, New Testament expands it, but it is all through the Old Testament, absolutely understood that there's this great battle. When Messiah comes, he'll do several things, two of which, one is to pour out the Spirit and rejuvenate his people and, 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 and fill them and do all this wonderful work. And the second thing is he will come and he will rescue his people. He will go to war. He will come like a mighty warrior. And he will destroy those who, have come again, who, who, have a, who are trying to destroy his people. He will fight and deliver his people from oppression. All right, you see that? That's the second part of the Joel prophecy. What does that have to do with Jesus? All right. This is the description I, I wanted you to see. I just want you, uh, I'm going to read a little more. Start at verse 9 there again. Joel 3. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near and let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. You'll notice that's backwards, isn't it, on Isaiah? Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all of you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So this call goes out, come, you hostile nations who hate, who hate the things of God, come around Israel. And then he says, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. This is right out of Revelation 14. Come, tread, for the winepress is full, right out of Revelation the vats overflowed for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near. Book of Revelation describes everyone, this, this great war that takes place in the valley of Jezreel. And it says God will tread out the grapes. How does he do it? Well, in the book of Revelation, it tells you he's going to send 100 pound hailstones uh, and he'll pummel the enemy army. That, that would pretty well trot out the grapes, wouldn't you agree? And... Uh, all right, and then look on, it goes on, verse 15. The sun and the moon will grow dark. The stars will lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold of the sons of Israel. Then you'll know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. They are waiting for Messiah to come as a great warrior, to rescue his people. It's a theme that's in the heart. They all know that. There is going to be this great war, this great battle, the smoke of which will darken the sky until the sun and moon are barely visible through the thick gloom. Have any of you ever been in a forest fire around that and been a heavy smoke area? What happens to the sky? It becomes this ominous, brown, heavy thing. The sun can barely be seen through it. It's kind of like a brown circle. The moon at night glows ugly red. It's, it's a horrible. This description of, of the moon as blood and the sun darkened, is, it's not eclipses. It's not astronauts dying on the moon. It's not any of those kinds of, it, it's, it's, this is Hebrew idiom. And it means there, there's a great battle. And the smoke and the, and the thing, the atmosphere is full of pollution and smoke. And you're looking through this darkness of this gloom. That's the description, which Joel's quoting right there. He will liberate Jerusalem from under the foot of the Gentiles. And an age of prosperity will begin with the Messiah ruling from Jerusalem. 
In this passage, Joel points out two things Messiah will do. He'll give the Holy Spirit and he'll rescue those who call on his name. So Peter's announcement is this. The Messiah has come. Yes, in an unexpected way by most of us because we didn't fully understand the scriptures. But he has come. And he's the central feature that makes the last days the last days. Just as the prophet said, he has poured out the Holy Spirit. And though that final, ba- and though at that final battle at the end of the age hasn't happened yet, Messiah has already begun rescuing all who call on him. He's a warrior and he's rescuing us from destruction. Amen? You see it? That's what he's saying. The end of the age hadn't come yet. They all knew that. Jesus had recently made that fact very clear to them, remember? They said, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring Israel? Are you gonna, in other words, are you coming in power and going to destroy our enemies? Did they have any enemies controlling the city? The Romans. Oh, yeah. They said, is this at the time when you're going to come and do that stuff? Because they all knew this stuff. Are you going to do this now? His answer was, it's not for you to know. And basically, no, I'm not. You're going to take the gospel all over the planet. We've got a lot of work to do. There's a season of harvest here. We're not shutting the show down yet. We've got souls to win. You follow that? Yeah. But the most wonderful part of the last days, the arrival of Messiah himself had happened. And now he was at work pouring out the spirit, not on all Israel, but on all who believed in him. And now... He was rescuing all who call on him. This mystery, I've I've just spoken it in a sense, but please get a hold of this. When we read such prophecies as this one in Joel, we may find ourselves asking, why didn't God fulfill all the prophecies when Jesus came the first time? Surely Jerusalem was in the grip of Gentile armies and would have welcomed his deliverance and the beginning of a season of peace and prosperity. That's what Palm Sunday was all about, isn't it? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Come on, rise up, free us, Messiah. Then they would have taken and made him king. This is all about that. The answer to this question lies in the heart of God. And it remained a mystery until Jesus revealed it. It has to do with his love and his longing for as many as possible to be with him in heaven forever. For that reason, he chose to delay the concluding events of the last days in order to initiate a new harvest of souls. He would fulfill some of the promises, but not all of them yet. He would indeed pour out the last day's fullness of the Spirit, but only on individual believers, not on all flesh, so they could vastly accelerate worldwide evangelism. He was was empowering his people, all of them, men and women, young and old, to make them effective soul winners. Now let me show you just briefly why. It just, I think you know this, but let's just, just have it really clear in our hearts. Because this explains why God does things the way he's done them. Second Peter chapter 3. I want you to see this. I'll start at verse 3. Peter again says this. He says, verse 3, know this first of all. That in the last days, in the what? Are we in them now? Yes, we most certainly are. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, 
following after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. People would begin to say, so why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Why doesn't he shut this show down? Why doesn't he come and destroy our enemies? Why doesn't he come and establish an enforced peace upon the planet? Why doesn't he do the things that the prophets say he will do? Peter gives us an answer. He says, first of all, I'll just, I'll just paraphrase it, five and six. He says, don't worry. If you're worried that God won't judge this planet, he said he's already done it by flooding it during Noah's time, okay? That was number one. And next time he comes, he's going to fricassee it in fire. So if you're worried about him not doing something, relax. It's going to happen, okay? You know what fricassee is, don't you? Yeah, yeah. it's my word. Um, Verse 8, now here's the reason. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. God is not in a hurry. He's not watching the calendar. He hasn't, he's got, does he know the end? Sure. But things aren't based on your figuring out times. I'm sorry, it's no fun, it is. But they are based on something. God has a a thing he's watching as to when he'll come. Let's see what it is. The Lord is not slow about his promise. He's not, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. Read these verses. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for every soul to come. Why didn't Jesus come in full power? when he, Why didn't he rise up and destroy the Romans? Why didn't he set up his kingdom? Why didn't he do those things? Because God had another plan. God's heart was, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to close down history. What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to fill my people with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to empower them as soul winners. I'm going to empower them with, with the same spirit that's in my son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to empower a whole army of them, and I'm going to send them into this world, and we are going to win souls. How has it worked? Well, we aren't perfect, and we've blown it some places, but I'm telling you, billions of people over these years have come in. Today, as we speak, hundreds of thousands a day become Christians. So which one is he going to shut the show down and not welcome? How many are glad he waited for you? Wasn't it nice? Yeah. You're glad he waited for you? What Peter has just said is he's waiting for the last soul. Is there a last soul? There is. Mm -hmm. Read the book of Revelation. It even tells you how we get there. But he's waiting for the last soul. There's a purpose in God's heart. What's the purpose? It's the love of God. This God of ours longs for more and more children. He wants every person. Far from somehow saying, I don't want you. He wants everyone he can possibly handle, have. And he is delaying the return of Christ until he's harvested the, hum- the planet from every soul possible. Then we all step into eternity and enjoy him forever. You understand? That's what this is about. It's a very calculated, strategic working of God. 
And Messiah was indeed now fighting as a great warrior to rescue all who call on his name. I didn't read you the, um, the other passage you have listed there, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Only to say when Jesus does come, it says, he will deal out retribution to those who've been against him. And they will, they, he, they will assign them to eternal destruction. Not my words, Peter's, Paul's. Eternal destruction. If anyone's told you that hell isn't permanent, that this lostness isn't permanent, that there's some way out, they've lied to you. There's nothing at all in Scripture. If there were, I'd tell you. <laughs> there is nothing in Scripture. Once you pass into eternity like that, you will stay alienated from God forever. I personally think the fires of hell are not some combustion where he's burning people alive. I think it's the Shekinah fire that will fill the universe. But your heart will be separated from him. You'll be in darkness. You'll be in the agony of the way you went into eternity forever. It's a horrible option. Why do you think he's delaying? To fight for every soul. To do everything possible to prevent as many from going there and to bring as many to himself as he can. He wants, his, he wants his heaven filled with children. Now, spirit-given language. That was your theology lesson. This phenomenon of, of speaking with other languages is recorded numerous times in the, in the book of Acts. This is not an isolated incident. It apparently occurred again when Peter and John laid hands on Philip's converts in Samaria. We may assume it occurred when Ananias laid hands on Paul. I mean, after all, he said, I speak in tongues more than you all. It's specifically stated that it occurred when Peter preached to the household of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And when Paul laid his hands on 12 disciples of Apollos, whom he met in Ephesus 26 years after that day of Pentecost. 26 years later, when people are having hands laid on them, and the Spirit of the Lord is infilling them, they're still speaking in other languages. Paul indicates that every believer is capable of speaking in an unknown language, and he encouraged them to do so, but he wanted them to speak primarily in known languages when they gathered for a church service. Surrendering the tongue. The first thing that happened when the Spirit filled them was that they began to speak words that the Holy Spirit gave them. And that phenomenon was still happening 26 years later. Apparently, an important mark of the Spirit's coming is Spirit-inspired speech. When He comes, He touches our lips. He wants to speak through us. Maybe that shouldn't surprise us. Look at this passage of Isaiah. Then I said, woe is me, because I'm a man of what? Unclean lips, and I live among a people of... How many would agree with Isaiah? Your mouth has spoken more doubt, more fear, more anger. You've said more nasty things about people than, than you, can, you even want to think about. We're not just talking about cussing. We're, we're talking about doubt, unbelief, anger, fear, criticism, gossip. How, how about those lips, huh? Something about our tongue. I mean, it's, it, it's, the, it's a central part of us. Why would it be that God would go right after that when, he, when the Spirit comes in, he says, now, I want your tongue. Huh. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs 
And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of God saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord like a veil coming down from heaven, just going right into the Holy of Holies. He's a vision. He's looking at it. And as he sees it, he's immediately aware of his own sin. And what's the thing he's aware of? My mouth. How can I be your prophet? How can I speak your word? How can I be used by you when my lips have been used for such sin? And everyone I know is like that. He sees a seraphim, the word means burning one, come and take a, uh, with a tong uh, a coal from the altar of, of the sacrifice, I think, and take that and touch his lips with it. Then God says, you're forgiven, you're cleansed. Now, who will go for me? And then Isaiah says, here I am, send me. His lips Look at the passage from James. James goes on and on. It's, it's, it's a great passage. But this statement's made. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. It is set on fire by hell. Another place he says, if a person can bridle their tongue, they bridled the whole, they brought their whole life into submission. Would you agree? Something about the tongue. It's not a small matter. In learning to yield to God, I must let the Spirit have control of my tongue. And that's where he went first on the day of Pentecost, because when the tongue surrenders, all of us surrenders. When I was 12 years old, I got dragged to a prayer meeting. I had never in my life heard the term speaking in tongues. I didn't know people did anything like that. I'd not particularly been raised in, in, in Christianity, did dabbles of it here and there. I just was dragged along and I was sitting off by myself waiting to go home. And then I hear a, a woman speak another language. I had no idea that it was a, a, some kind of spiritual thing. I thought they're bilingual. I wonder what they are. And then I heard a man speak in English. I thought, that's God. I thought, I want to hear what he's got to say. And I began to focus and listen. And then I don't know what happened because I blanked out. But here's the point. When I came to sitting in that chair, my head was tipped up. I felt like I'd been plugged into the wall socket. I mean, I was just, whoa. And my head was tipped and my mouth was open and my tongue was moving by itself. I can still remember this. And as a 12-year-old boy, I thought to myself, there's an angel, and he's moving my tongue. Now, I did not think, hallelujah. I thought, ah, get me out of here. And I turned around, I said, let's get out of here. And I ran. I mean, I was like, I was not amused. I was not blessed. I was terrified, okay? I get this thing. Something about our tongue, and for me, oh boy, to give up my tongue, for weeks, I went through all kinds of struggle with the Lord. My mom, on, a, on, on a, one occasion at least, and I think it was two, came in to my room in the morning and said, Well, you spoke another language. You sat up in bed and talked last night. I said, 
what did I say? She said, I don't know. It's not a language. I said, what kind was it? She said, I, I think it was German or something. I don't know. <laughs> I won't go through the story, but it's kind of funny. I decided I wouldn't go to sleep in that case. <laughs> Obviously, I did. And uh, I was, the thing, I, now I knew what you called this, because my mom would hang around with those people. I avoided those groups. I only was there if I was under severe duress. I didn't even want to be in the house. I'd sit upstairs when they were downstairs. Um, I didn't want to be around them because I didn't want that crazy feeling. And, and I was afraid that he wanted my mouth. My mom at one point came into my room and, and, and she said, look, she said, um, if this is God, he's not going to make you do something you don't want. That's not true, but I, I was 12 and believed her. And uh, yes, it's nonsense. <laughs> uh, but I, I thought that was true at the time. And, and she, said, um, she said, why don't you ask him to take it away? Now, I hadn't tried that. I'd tried cussing. Uh, I'd try, I, had, I had tried various things to get him to, to leave me, so to get, get this away from me. And it was this thing with a tongue. And... Uh, so I went in the room and I closed the door and I had a very profound moment in my life. I, I said, uh, I thought about it and I thought, I don't, wanna, I don't want him to leave. I mean, something new's come in my life that's never been there before. This is, I mean, I, I, just, I just can't have him leave. So I said this to him. I said, God, I, I don't want you to leave me. But I don't want to speak in tongues. And then I coughed out my submission. Yet, if, if this is a big deal to you, I will do it. Would you give me some space? I'm scared spitless. And he lifted that pressure. And it was years later, six years later, six years later, that I was, I, somebody got me into a prayer meeting uh, for college students. And they said, come on, Steve, help us pray. And one of these, this, uh, a, a, a young gal about a, a, a year younger than I was. In fact, I knew her, her father was one of my teachers. And uh, she wanted to be this. And so I had this one woman is ministering to her, really. And I'm supposed to be helping. So I'm laying hands from kind of the back. And I, you know, I'm laying hands like this <laughs> on her. And, and to my horror. This girl speaks in tongues. And my horror was that I, I knew what a chicken I was. And I thought, and then she speaks in tongues. And I thought, are you going to let a girl? <laughs> I mean, come on. I'm a, young, I'm a male chauvinist. I'm a, a, are you going to let a girl who's younger than you do this? And you're such a wimp. I thought, I'm going to do this. And I turned and I, I knew I could do, just let this come. And I just let it out. You don't think up the words. You don't invent them. It's not, not some deal like that at all. It kind of sort of flows out of the belly. And I just let it come. It just flew out, came out of me. And it, and, and it took such a weight off me. I'd been so afraid. There was something like, if, if I give my tongue, it's like going insane. It's like becoming a child again. It's like giving my mind up. I'm, I'm emphasizing that because when James says the tongue controls the whole thing, when, when the Lord goes after our tongue, he wants 
our tongue. He wants to speak through us. He prophesies through us. He, he brings other languages through us. He wants the tongue. And it was such a hard fight for me. Just, a, one, just one of these personal observations and then I'll quit. Here are several ways. Speaking in tongues, speaking in a spirit-given language is a great help to me. It was yesterday, I was, I was sitting next to a young person and I said, do you, how often do you, do you pray in tongues? And he said, not often enough. I said, well, when do you? And he said, he said, when I'm in a situation and I just don't know what to pray, when I'm out of words, when I'm, when I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, he said, then I'll pray until something comes. And I thought, that was, that's wise. And I was thinking back in my own life. How often have you been in a position where you don't know what to say? You don't, I mean, you're out of words. The thing, the situation is overwhelming. It's too big for you. You're confused. You are just at the end of your wits. Your own eloquence in prayer is done. If you've never been there, I can tell you you've not been in many hospitals. And you have not been in many situations where people are in severe need. It crossed my mind last night. I, I have been in so many situations, but this is, here's a classic. I had, it, it, when Mary and I were living in, in, in St. Paul, uh, going to a seminary there, I had led one of my classmates into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I, he's a Lutheran. And... Um, it's interesting. I'd prayed for him, and nothing had, nothing had kind of come in terms of spiritual language or anything. And then he was in uh, our, we were in seminary, our chapel. And the chapel there was a redone uh, gymnasium. So the acoustics are incredible. And, and we have 400 Lutheran men. Now, now the thing about Lutherans is they can, they can sing on key. And, and uh, <laughs> it is, it's a gift. You're born with it. And, and, I, and they can sing on pitch. And, and, they, and they can all sing harmonies. I mean, just like that. So you, can you imagine 400 Lutheran men just singing? It was, it was beautiful. It really was. Well, in the middle of chapel, he told me this later, in the middle of the chapel, he's, he's, you know, praise the Lord and just singing away, and he suddenly listens to himself, and it's not English coming out of his mouth. He didn't even know it switched. He's just going, what's that? He calls me up pretty excited about God at this point. He says, would you go with me and pray for my uncle? He said, he's dying. He's at the veterans hospital. I said, sure. And little did I know what I was in for. We went to see uncle Bob at the veterans hospital and uncle Bob was in the final stages of pancreatic cancer. I will not describe it, but if you haven't seen that, you, you're blessed. We, the two, here's these two young men, and we come walking into Uncle Bob's room, and we're going to pray for Uncle Bob. And then we see Uncle Bob. Tubes coming out of everything, and I won't go further into the description. And we're just overwhelmed. We just look at this and we're going, we're going to pray. Whoopee. And he looks at me and goes, what do we do? I said, why don't we pray in the spirit? I don't know. We just bowed our heads and stood there. Just let it roll. 
Maybe, I, I think it was quite a while because we couldn't think of anything to say. So we just, just let it roll. About 10 minutes, probably. And at one point, I, I, I kind of heard a rustling and I looked up. And Uncle Bob, who's been in a coma with, again, as I said, tubes coming out everywhere, just gone. Uncle Bob is looking square at me as sober as a judge. I don't know if that's a good phrase to use any longer. <laughs> but you know what I'm trying, driving it, yeah, yeah. You understood me too well. Um, anyway, so he's looking square at me. I'm embarrassed. I mean, it's so lucid. I'm embarrassed. I'm in the man's room doing this. And, you know, I'm thinking, and, and I look at him and go, hi. I'm with your nephew. <laughs> you know, and my, my friend Carrie is standing over here going, Uncle Bob. He says, Uncle Bob, I look sober. And he says, Uncle Bob, it's me, Carrie, your nephew. He says, I've, I've come to tell you about Jesus. And Uncle Bob looks at him, you know, and, and he, he gets, he sits, Uncle Bob, and he just goes right through the gospel with Uncle Bob. And then he says, Uncle Bob, would, would you like to receive Jesus Christ? What? He prays, and, and the man's got stuff. He can't talk, but the man's just with him, you know, tears. The whole thing leads Uncle Bob to, G, to Jesus. Uncle Bob then, there's a peace that settles over him, and he just he goes kind of peacefully to sleep. Four hours later, we heard he'd passed away. If you've never been in a situation when you don't know what on earth to say, when you haven't felt overwhelmed, when you haven't felt that your own prayers are just not enough, please understand something. This isn't some mark of, of superiority. It isn't some, st what they say, they call this stuff ecstatic speech. And, and they, it, the, the way that the people who don't know what this is talk about it, you'd think that we, we, you greased yourself down with oil and beat the drums till you, till you fell in some ecstatic trance and went babble, 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 babble. That's disgusting. That is not what it is at all. It's a gentle, gracious gift. Some people say, well, yeah, it's the least of the gifts. In which case, it's the perfect one for you. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Isn't it? Oh, no, not for me. It's perfect for you, but I'm way too good for this gift. <laughs> Think about that. Is that carnal and stupid or what? Who talks like that? about the gifts of God. It's the least of the gifts, so I'm not going to have something like that. May I point out God doesn't make bad gifts? May I point out that every gift has a purpose for which it was created? And they're all different. Healing's one thing. Knowledge is another. Wisdom is another. I mean, for heaven's sakes, what are we doing? What we're doing is buffering ourselves. We're coming up with spurious arguments, trying to protect ourselves from something we're terrified of. At least be honest. Don't game the thing. It's a, it's a beautiful gift. Would you notice? Sola tarela masilia I am not rolling on the floor, frothing. <laughs> Would you notice it has nothing to do with being emotionalized? Please? The Holy Spirit simply comes and graces us and gives us a capacity to speak in the tongues of men and angels. 
language which he understands. I don't. But I can sense what's happening. I told you about my encounter with the Lord at 12. I am 64, for heaven's sakes. And I'm doing that more, not less. I need him more when I'm angry. It sure beats cussing. You know, I'm in the garage, you know, stuff falling all over the place. I'm not joking. I am not absolutely do that. There are alternatives, which I don't like. When I'm afraid, when I'm depressed, when I'm just nothing, I got nothing. I can't concoct any kind of great prayers. God, what a comfort. What a sweet thing he's given us. Nobody's going to do anything to you. I'm just explaining it to you. And I'm telling you, in Christ, it's given to you now. It's not like you've got to talk him into anything. It's yours. It's something you can simply say, God, I want that. I give you my tongue. And you'll find that as you do, it opens the door to other gifts of the Spirit. Word of knowledge, prophetic word. Other things begin to come and be work. God does want our tongues. Why? That's the point at which he brings life. Father God, we thank you for who you are. Your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. But they're higher than our thoughts. And Lord Jesus, as we see the word of God today and we see what you did with your disciples on that day of Pentecost, all of them, men and women, young and old, out came this beautiful spiritual language. And it was real languages. And, and the people heard. And the miracle took place. And Lord God, we just say to you that every part of us, including our tongue, belongs to you. And we would give you our tongue to speak your word, to speak prophetically, to speak spiritual language as you have given to us. Come, Holy Spirit, give us everything. Give us everything that is our birthright. We ask it in Jesus' powerful name. If you agree with me, would you say amen? amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.